We acknowledge the lives lost to suicide and recognize those who have survived suicide attempts and those who struggle today or in the past with thoughts of suicide, mental health issues, and crisis situations. We acknowledge all those who have felt the deep impact of suicide, including those who love, care, and support people experiencing suicidality and those experiencing the pain and bereavement through suicide. We respect collaboration with people who have a lived or living experience of suicide and mental health issues and value their contribution to the work we do. The trauma that I'd experienced in my life and what I went through in my life really disconnected me from myself. So the only experience I could ever get of feeling okay was when I had that drug hit my brain. Welcome to Holding On To Hope, a series that shares the stories of everyday Australians that have experienced moments in crisis and found a path to support. Whilst all of the stories shared offer hope and inspiration, at times you may hear something you find triggering. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14, text 0477 13 11 14, or visit toolkit.lifeline.org.au for Lifeline chat service, which is 24-7. Hello and thank you for joining me. I'm Ruben and I'm a volunteer telephone crisis supporter at Lifeline. I'm one of the voices you may hear if you call for support. At the age of 15, I lost my dear father to suicide. Ever since that fateful day, I always wished my father had the opportunity to talk to someone like me when he needed it the most. 13 years later and four years into my journey with Lifeline, I'm now part of that opportunity and this is why I'm so passionate about hosting this series. If you're not quite ready to talk, Perhaps you'll find comfort by listening to the stories of people who have experienced the value of reaching out for help. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Andrew's life's journey started with a difficult beginning as a forced adoptee at birth, and he later experienced psychological and physical abuse. As a result, Andrew was left with complex trauma that affected him deeply. At the age of 15, Andrew used his first drug, which was alcohol, and at the age of 20, he found himself in total despair, owing someone $300, which felt like $3 million at the time. He robbed his family's house and made an attempt on his own life. From that point on, Andrew continued on a path of chronic, self-destructive AOD addiction, using any drug to the maximum as a continuous attempt to escape his pain. Andrew's addiction led him to a life of hopelessness and imprisonment, but he never felt like he hit rock bottom because he always felt like he was already there. Andrew's journey took a turn where he finally let go and was willing to do whatever it took to get well. Since 1994, Andrew has worked in the AOD field, dedicating 17 years of that time to Corrective Services New South Wales. He continues to share his story to give hope to others in similar situations and dedicates his time to helping others. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. We're obviously very happy to have people that are willing to share their story. Can you tell us a bit about your experience as a forced adoptee at birth and how it has impacted your life journey? A lot of times when I share in with people about my story, I always say, like, I was a good kid until I was seven. When I was seven, three things happened. We moved towns, I changed schools, and I found out I was adopted and I repeated second grade because of my age, not because of my ability. I could read, write, spell. I was quite intelligent and quite 
interested in school and curious. And also the school we went to was quite a violent school. So not from the students, but the teachers, so the clerk or the nuns and monks were quite violent at that school. So, and I'm not sure how the question of adoption came about, but I imagine there was a curiosity or someone brought it up or someone said something. But when I found out I was adopted, it was interesting. I put all those things together and then plus the adoption and something happened in me. It's almost like the day my brain changed. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, well, I'm on my own here. So I really don't have anyone or anything. I remember feeling really disconnected from life at that moment. And it's, it was almost at that moment or at that period of time when all those things went on that I actually went into survival and I stopped being curious. I stopped wanting to learn. I started doing a lot. I started smoking cigarettes. I look at a seven-year-old and I just, I can't imagine that kid having a cigarette or going down to the shop to buy cigarettes. You know, I started stealing money. I started fighting these kids at school. I started get punished at the school quite aggressively, especially by one of the nuns there. And I was almost getting caned every day. So it was almost like those combination of things. But the adoption thing had a big effect. But then I sort of started thinking, well, why did I get adopted into this situation? If I was going to be adopted, why couldn't I have been adopted into a better situation? Then I started this idea that it has to be better somewhere else. Then I started watching other parents with their children and other fathers with their sons, and I really started to feel like I'd missed out. That belief or that idea grew in me to a point where I did really feel separate from other people, and I sort of almost developed a bit of an outside-looking-in sort of experience. It definitely changed the way I experienced myself and the way I experienced the world. How did you feel after it happened? I'd been using heroin for a while. I was 20 when I had the attempt on my life and started using heroin when I was late 16s, early 17s, around that period of time. So I had a bit of a conscience and I, and I was also like a fearful kid. So I remember thinking when I was using heroin, I, I just had this idea that I'm somehow going to become a bank robber, like I'm going to have to go and rob banks. I had a lot of concepts, you know, and the concepts I had of things were my realities. I probably stopped using heroin for a little while and then sort of started again. So I was at an age where I, was, I started again. I probably didn't quite have another heroin habit yet. I was getting there. And I remember I went into my parents' room and I was looking for a box of matches to light cigarettes. And I was going through my father's drawers. There was a wad of money. And I think this would have been in 1983. And I remember it was like, it was over $600. I grabbed the money. I went in and, and I wrote down all the notes. So I wrote down X amount of 20s, X amount of 10s, X amount of 5s. Because in my mind, I was going to put it back. At the time, I didn't think, will I or won't I take it? It was like, I am taking it and then I'm going to put it back. So there was not like it was a choice. It was like, well, it's there, I have to take it. And then I went and met a friend. He hired a car. We headed off down to Melbourne. We got down to Melbourne. We bought a lot of heroin. We are using heroin. We came back to Griffith where I was living. And I remember we went back to his place and we divided it all up into little $100 packets. So we're going to sell the $100 packets, you know, recoup the money. You know, basically then everything was going to be okay. And I was walking home and also had a debt. There was a guy I owed money to. I owed this guy $300. I'd robbed the house. I had this debt. I was back using heroin again, getting close to you know, probably getting a habit again. And I was walking through the train yards. I just started to feel this overwhelming sense of just despair. And it's interesting, the $300 popped into my head and I had this moment. I thought, God, it seemed like $3 million at the time. I thought, oh, how can I do this? You know, the robbing the house, the, just the shame and the guilt that I started to experience. And I thought, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm in a deep hole. Like in isolation, that's no big deal. But I'd had 
years of just depression, years of anxiety, years of poor mental health, years of drug addiction, nothing sort of ever working out. You know, I had this sense that I didn't belong anywhere, I didn't fit in. So I pile all that on the top of this. So I've got $800 packets of heroin in my pocket. I'm walking through these train yards. I'm starting to experience these feelings. And I just thought, I can't go on. I just can't do this anymore. Well, firstly, I put all the packets in my mouth. They were just in paper envelopes. So I put all the packets in my mouth and I remember them sticking to all the roof of my mouth and I, I couldn't actually swallow them. And I found this tap and I ended up swallowing them. And I thought, well, when the paper dissolves, there's enough heroin in there to overdose me and, I, and I'll die. So I kept walking. I was close to home. I found a park at home and I lay down in this park and it would have been about three o'clock in the morning. And someone was jogging through the park and they stopped and asked me what I was doing. I didn't say anything, but I just thought, well, I'm lying here dying. I want to die. I don't know why, but I got up then and I actually went home. And I went home, I got into bed, and I cut my wrists. And my next memory was waking up the next morning with my parents standing over my bed saying, did you steal the money? And I said, yes, I stole the money. And they said, get out of the house. And I threw the sheets back and there was like blood everywhere. I didn't have time to have any experience of the attempt being unsuccessful. I was so intoxicated and like I was so stoned from the amount of heroin they had on board that I ended up leaving the house. I went up and sat up on the side of the hill behind our house and then I saw my father's car drive off to my friend's place because I don't know why he, in his mind, he thought if he could go and confront his friend, that would somehow make it a, like fix me or appease him or something, I'm not sure. So, And I sat there for a while. I can't remember what was going through my head at the time, but I went back home and I said, look, can I get my Medicare card so I can go to the hospital? They sort of stitched me up. Next thing I know, I just remember being in this group room. They were running a group in there and I was just still so stoned from this heroin. I could hardly stand up. And I remember sitting in this group and I'm not sure what it was about, what was going on. And then the next thing I know, I sort of woke up in a hospital bed again. And then the next memory I had was waking up at in bed at home. And then we went and saw a GP and the GP rang around a whole bunch of drug rehabs and I got into a drug rehab and I think I went there like the next day. But at the time, through this whole experience, I was just so out of it that I didn't really have an after experience till probably later. I was 100% I'm out. I can't stand this life anymore. I can't stand living anymore. I had no hope. I didn't see any future for myself. All I felt was guilt. I felt shame. I just felt quite mad and disconnected and not a part of anything. I didn't have any reason to want to be a part of anything. What was it like living with addiction? It's like living in a frenzy. I think addiction's largely misunderstood. I remember when I had my first drug, which was alcohol. At the time, I thought it set me free. The drug acted on my brain that just released all the pain, all the tension. I said before that experience of feeling on the outside looking in, it sort of all of a sudden it felt like I was in. And I Definitely fell in love with the experience. Like I vomited that night. Even that night, we actually rode off my mother's car going for a joyride. Gosh. I was nearly 15. To be truthful, I didn't actually care about that. What I cared about was having that experience again. It's almost like I'd say I devoted my life to, to the pursuit of having an intoxication, like being intoxicated. I had no control over this. Like I didn't want to be like this. I just wanted to be a regular kid. And progressing through all the drugs, like drank alcoholically. I drank a lot. I drank a lot and I drank a lot, a lot of the time and a lot of alcohol. Been introduced to cannabis and everything I did, I said I'd never do. So I said, I'll never use other drugs. The day my parents found marijuana in the house, they packed my bags and put the marijuana on my bags at the front door of the house. 
So they actually kick me out of the house. It's interesting how different drugs are perceived. Like alcohol's like fine. You can be blind drunk all the time. No one will bat an eyelid, but you use another drug and all of a sudden it's like, you know, you, you, you don't belong in the house. Then I use powders. I said, I never use powders. Then I use needles. I said, I use needles. Then I use heroin. I said, I never use heroin. And, and it's like this progression of the thing. But that initial experience gave me the illusion that I'd discovered my true self. But what it actually did was it took me further away from my true self. I had to use more and more and more and more to have that experience again. The trauma that I'd experienced in my life and what I went through in my life really disconnected me from myself. So the only experience I could ever get of feeling okay was when I had that drug hit my brain. We hope you're enjoying this episode. Lifeline's new support toolkit makes it easier to care for family, friends and loved ones and look after yourself along the way. Visit us at toolkit.lifeline.org.au. Now, back to the episode. Can you walk us through the turning point when you decided to face your addiction and trauma head on? Well, addiction was first. After that attempt on my life, I went to rehab. I stayed for three months. I decided I really didn't want to be who I was. I wanted to be someone that could use alcohol and other drugs successfully. So I left there. When I first walked into rehab, a woman in that rehab who I ended up working with later when I worked in corrective services, a coffee table opposite me in this room in the rehab, and it was the first time in my life that I'd ever felt understood. And that moment, I think, gave me a hope that never left me. I only stayed for three months and I thought, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to be a normal person. If I don't use needles, I'll be all right. And I think within two hours of making that decision, we were shooting up Ritalin. Ended up having eight admissions into this rehab. The first seven, I decided I had a great plan and I'd leave. And when I wasn't in rehab, I was generally, I started going to prison as well. So I was either in prison, I was homeless, or I was in the rehab. So that was the three states, you know, for probably about 18 months. The last time I was admitted into rehab, which was on the 19th of August, 1985, was the day before, I remember being probably as out of as I'd ever been in my life. I'd been using heroin pills, marijuana, drinking, and I felt fear. I remember saying to myself that the drugs don't work because it, I was like so out of it, but I still felt frightened. And it was like all the previous admissions into this rehab and all the connections with this peer group of people that I felt understood by and that actually made sense to me and I, I actually felt connected to because it's like I'd found my tribe. You know, I'd found this group of people that had been through everything I'd been through and that were great people. They just welcomed me for who I was. And I'd, I'd, my whole life had been rejected for who I was. Did you feel for the first time that you were making the decision for you? You know, was it something that you wanted to do and what you felt that you needed to do? Yeah. It was at yeah. that moment for yeah. you. Yeah, it was 100% me doing it for me. And I think the other previous times, it was doing it for myself, but generally there was an external motivation or the crisis. It was like, you know, there'd be a crisis, but then the crisis would pass. So I, I thought, well, once the crisis passed, I'll be all right. But there was just, there was an inner acknowledgement, like an inner, like surrender within myself. It's almost like giving into a reality. You're running into a brick wall and you don't give up and just sit at the foot of the wall. You, you sort of give in and, and find a different direction, you know. And the one thing I'd probably done previously was I constantly gave up on myself, whereas this time I just gave in to the truth about my situation, which then opened the door for me to get help because until I acknowledged that within myself, I didn't need help because I knew everything and I had the answers for myself. But once I 
surrender to that fact that I actually don't have any answers and I don't know what to do and I need to learn how to live, that's when I was able to accept, you know, the help that was available and, and then put that help into practice. In my life today, I just I practice all the tools that people practice to get better or to improve themselves. And I think dealing with the trauma, it wasn't until I was probably about 10 years drug-free before I even started looking at that. I probably didn't have the capacity or the support in my life to go through that process. And I'm a bit sort of wary when people want to introduce dealing with trauma with people that are fresh out of like a rehab or fresh out of a detox or fresh out of an active addiction or even fresh out of a, a mental health episode that they're actually, oh, you got to deal with your trauma. It's like you need a lot on board to work through trauma. I needed a lot of ability to self-support, self-soothe structure in my life. I need a lot of people around that I could you know, lean on, talk to, get support from. I needed probably a fair bit of insight. I'd learned over the years to support myself as well because when you open that door of dealing with your trauma, it's a lid you take off that you can never ever put back on. So it's something that I'm also really wary of when I talk to people that I don't invite them to open doors that you're in this for the long haul. How has your experience impacted your views on addiction and mental health? I think of living through it myself and being quite mentally unwell and cognitively unwell and I think being a traumatized person as a you know a heroin user as a you know a substance user that was sort of where enough isn't enough it's like well I can't just use my money you got to use other people's money and you got to do crime and you do stuff and you know so that person that might have been sexually abused at, at five years old that ends up breaking into your house as a heroin addict you know like people don't make the connection all they see is, you know, some scumbag junkie that's breaking into my house. And I think then to punish that person further is like, you can't punish the trauma out of people. I was loved back to life by people who had, had been through that experience and were willing to actually walk that journey beside me. And then to have compassion is a pretty enormous thing, you know, and it's not easy for people to have compassion for people who seem to have done, done the wrong thing you know, and the stigma attached to that stuff. So, and even at times myself, like I've worked with people and like I've worked in prison for 17 years with people and I even found it difficult to have compassion and I lost my compassion at times, you know, and I'd become judgmental and became critical and became sort of really like, you know, what's wrong with you, you know? And even for me, I've lived through that experience, I found it difficult to, to maintain that all the time. And I've grown a lot through that and I learn a lot about myself through that experience and real, knowing now that it's there's nothing wrong with me there's a lot of stuff that it's what happened to me was the issue and and now when I see people or people coming through I don't think well, what's wrong with you I just I often in my head I just think well I wonder what happened to you then I can get curious about that and I can ask about that and I can then be in put myself in that person's shoes and the idea that you can just sort of snap out of it and just sort of get better, it takes a long time for people to reach out and to get help. Some people are in their generally mid-30s, late-30s, early-40s, you know, so it takes probably a long time for people to actually to reach out and get help, especially with people that are difficult, people with mental illness, you know, we're difficult. We're not easy to work with. And I don't know what I'm doing sometimes when I was in those situations, so... How does someone else kind of know what I'm going to be doing? So I think there's a lot of people in our society, a lot of people that have an enormous compassion and have an enormous wisdom around these sort of issues. I think that's growing and expanding all the time. There's people that don't. So it's, it's not like everything's always perfect or everything's always imperfect. I think everything's complicated and it's confusing. One of the greatest things I learned working with people is I call it like 50-50 
I can give 50% and I can be at that line and I'm there for people to turn up with their 10%, their 20%, their 30%, their 40%, their 50% of the relationship. And if they give 10, it's not good for me or them for me to give 90. Just keep turning up with my 50%. And if they give 10, that's great. And the next time they might give 11%, they might give 12, they might give 15, they might not turn up again at all. They might just wander off and go and do something else. I've got to understand that it took me a long time to learn that. I can't fix people. I can just be available for people and I can show people respect and compassion. It might only be a little thing, just being nice to someone that's in this situation or just letting someone talk and listening and letting them know that they're actually heard. Like I was that one day that I first ever walked into rehab that even though it took another 18 months and a lot of prison and homelessness and drama in between, but that planted that seed that one day ripened that I was able to get better. So that person... No way in the world they could have fixed me, but they're available just long enough for me to have an experience within myself that, that said there is hope. I think that's so important. I don't know if we'll ever understand mental illness and addiction. I think a lot of people try, a lot of people throw things at it. There's a lot of miracle cures all the time around this, that and the other. I don't know, I just think trauma and addiction, I think they're probably just part of the human condition. It's something that I think we can definitely get better at. But I think compassion and understanding are probably the two most important ingredients in understanding that you know i think judgment punishment criticism stigma i don't think there's that's ever going to work what do you do in your day-to-day life andrew that helps manage the frequency and severity of the difficult days that you may have i still do meetings regularly so i still do support groups regularly and i'm active in those support groups i do service in them like i host meetings on zoom and, and i'm involved i actually support other people in those programs to actually work through those stuff so you know, so I'm available in that sense. I go to therapy once a week as well. So I've seen a psychotherapist now for, for a long time. I guess it's sort of, there's a bit of a principle like that sort of adjust for today. Like I try to really live life really simply. I generally get up in the morning, I take a bit of time, you know, I'll go and my thing is I just, my ritual is I go and walk, walk the dogs, you know, I let them run out in the desert and I just take time to just reflect on where I'm at. You know, I try to connect with where I'm at. Just like basic things, I try to be honest. I, you know, try to keep my mind open to things. You know, I try and stay willing to act in ways that are that are not old ways. You know, so it's very easy to go back into old patterns. You know, especially when I'm feeling threatened or feeling insecure or you know feeling like I'm under pressure. So it's always it's easy to set those default survival protection things that I set up that are so sophisticated <laughs> and and, it's, and they promise a lot. You know, but the thing is what I've learned over time that recovery has delivered what drugs promised. I guess I keep trying to live in the delivery, practicing those tools of just being patient, just making sure I have contact with someone every day, making sure that I take care of myself, eat well, that I, you know, that I actually clean up after myself, like the basic domestic things. I'll go through all that stuff effortly. I don't even notice I'm doing it. And some days it just seems like an effort to clean my teeth, you know. So they're the days that I've just got to you know, just go, all right, this is just a day. So, and especially in the therapeutic process, sometimes you get a lot of stuff come up or working with people and and there's triggers everywhere for things. Living as a, you know, a traumatised person and a recovering person, there's it's not like it's, it's never ending, but you just get moments where you need to actually just take time and just go, oh, okay, this is a tough day or this is a tough moment or, you know, and sometimes I just forget, you know, I go for three days and I just forget that I'm supposed to take care of myself, you know, and, and you think, what happened those last three days, you know? <laughs> no, I agree, you know, like you know? Some, sometimes yeah. the way things are, it can just, yeah, it can just feel like a bit of a blur and, yeah. you know, to have that ability yeah. to 
we use the term, you know, self-care. I love using it. The fact that you can give yourself that, I think, is amazing. And what works for you works for you. Even taking yeah. the dogs out, you know, I haven't been to Broken Hill myself, but I'm assuring that's probably a, a different experience from walking the dogs in the suburbs. Not that I have a dog, but I used to have a dog. <laughs> that unique experience that you get, um, I think it's good and you've got to cherish that. Yeah. Well, my term for self-care is come home you know and i think my practice now is just to stay in my body and then stay with myself you know and i think what i did in a sense is like i picked up where the perpetrators left off i became the person that was hard on myself and i became the person that was critical of myself so you know so and part of that was about like constantly living outside of my body today more and more and more i'm able to stay in my body which is where everything is, where the hope is, where the passion is, you know, but it's where the insecurity is, it's where the fear is, it's where, so it's like, if I go into a situation where I have a bit of social anxiety, I don't leave the social anxiety in the car and try to and pretend to be okay, I walk into the situation with my social anxiety. We're all going to this party, <laughs> not just the pretend confident person, we're, <laughs> we're all going in, you know, <laughs> If I go into situations, if I'm, you know, fearful or anxious or whatever, I go, well, we're all going to go, you know, because that is part of who I am. So I'm learning to integrate all those parts of myself. So all of me goes everywhere. And that for me is my where I'm in my strength and where I feel the safest. Whereas once upon a time, I thought my job was to pretend to be someone else. So I wouldn't get in trouble. I wouldn't get punished. I wouldn't get hurt. You know, so um, today I don't need to do that. You know, because I can take care of myself and I am a safe vessel for myself. But that's taken a lot of work, you know, a lot of tears. What advice would you give to someone who is struggling with addiction or trauma and is afraid to seek help? Well, that's a big question. Yeah, yeah, wow. The one thing I would would do is to probably say to someone just to look within yourself and ask yourself what you really, really want and then find where you can get that need met and don't give up if you don't feel understood the first time or you don't feel like you're getting your needs met the first time like keep trying and I think to value yourself as someone that deserves to have peace and then the other thing I'd say once you do start this journey it's one thing to get help but then I think the most important thing is be willing to do the work that will help it's easy to try and avert a crisis or to get into a situation where you can get a moment of help and support, but then when the crisis passes, to give up on yourself and then just let the old ways sort of take over again. I think it's important not to give up on yourself. Andrew, I did want to say thank you so much for today. It's been absolutely amazing being able to hear you and hear your story um, and be a part of it. And I'm sure our listeners or watchers will absolutely adore being able to hear you and, and hopefully connect with your story as well. Thank you, Ruben. And um, yeah, and thanks everyone that, that sort of put this together. It's been quite a, an emotional and humbling experience for me. You know, I've just, yeah, I've just felt really privileged to be in a position where I can actually do this because many, many years ago, I didn't think I could actually own a pair of shoes, let alone be able to have, be given such a gift that I can actually share. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Holding On To Hope, the podcast. Lifeline is grateful to all Holding On To Hope participants for choosing to share their personal lived experiences openly and courageously in order to offer hope and inspiration to others. Your act of kindness makes for a better world. And remember, 
You don't have to struggle alone. Visit toolkit.lifeline.org.au today.